beatings from Philippians 3 will commence. Philippians 3, verse 16, please. Actually, go to verse 14. Philippians 3, 13 and 14 says, by forgetting the things behind and by straining forward to reach the things ahead. That's the Christian life is that we're advancing and we're advancing and we're advancing and we're straining forward to what God wants us to strain forward toward. We're letting successes from yesterday go. We're letting failures from yesterday go. We are stretching forward to the things that are ahead. That's the way you deal in the present time with the past and the future. You forget the past and you strain forward to the future. According to the standard of the goal, that's the best guy can kind of literally bring forth what the Greek is saying. According to this perspective that I get from what God has presented, he's got a mission that he wants me to be serious about because there's an evaluation at the end of how did I do in the mission. According to the standard of the goal, I press on. Do you press on? This is a daily, consistent adjustment. I am in a constant pattern of advance. I'm pressing on. Dioko, we said in Greek, is the word to mean pursue, to persecute, or to simply consistently advance toward. What happens when you stop pressing on? What happens when you take a break? Well, stop it. Stop stopping. Release that parking brake. Put things back in gear. Well, yeah, but I just, you know, I stepped off the path and I'm just not, I'm not advancing. Well, that's at this point, the past. In your present, you're stuck on past bad choices. Forget what lies behind. You failed. You dropped the ball. What do we do with our personal sins, our failures? I've just told you, confess them to God. He cleans you up every time. It's the blood of Jesus that goes on cleansing us from all sin in First John chapter one. So get cleaned up. And move forward, advance. I'm not trying to wake that baby up. I joked about it before. I'm not, I'm not trying. I'm trying to wake some of y'all upstairs up. But this is the pattern, is a constant advance. Advance to what? The goal. What's the goal? A oh, well done at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what you're advancing toward. And your search, your constant quest to be pleasing to God. Therefore, as many as are mature, let us think this way. And if, if you are of any other thinking, God will reveal this to you also. If you're not willing to say, let's get on mission, let's get, let's get with it. Let's, let's cut out all the distractions and be serious about God's advance, God's mission for me. If you think any other way, God will reveal this to you also. Why would I not think the way God thinks about my life? Why would I not think that way? Think about it. What would, what would, what's going on with me where I don't think about God's purpose for my life and I'm not on mission? It's what you're looking at. It's, it's all it is. Your attention is distracted from your savior. You're no longer occupied with Jesus Christ. And so eh, I'm just kind of going through the motions of life. And it's futile pursuits. And that's not uh, God's plan for you. But if you go there, God will, God will circle back around and get you. The standard for living is in verses 16 and 17. Nevertheless, unto that which we've already attained, that's our position in Christ, the promise of our resurrection. You know you're going to the judgment seat of Christ. To that which we've already attained, to this let us, stoikeo, let us advance in line. Let us advance and advance and advance like soldiers marching in ranks. That's us together. We're on the, all in this together. Let's advance in this work. I really like the book Cold Case Christianity by J. Werner Wallace. I think it's very interesting. A person, I believe, came to Christ later in life after a career as a cold case um, detective using what clues he could from the cases to solve unsolved murders. And um, before DNA solved all everybody's problems, he was using clues and putting together, um, you know, the, the, the data set that he had from the, the case files 
to figure out and solve these cases. He was fairly successful, good, I mean, a successful close rate of cold cases. And he became a Christian and said, you know, um, looking at the evidence of the scriptures and, uh, and the, the surrounding evidence around the scriptures, you can apply the same principles that I was using as, you know, as Sherlock Holmes to, um, to, to, to demonstrate the provenance of the Bible. I can believe the Bible because of this evidence and, um, evidence is, has its place in Christian apologetics. I don't think you're going to look at evidence as an unbeliever and say, Oh, I believe in Jesus. That's not how it necessarily works. And people get upset about evidentiary apologetics. I think evidence is very valuable for you and me because it backs up what we believe with a really a helpful dose of reason, because we don't have a blind faith. We have a reasoned faith. I'll give you one piece of evidence. The moon keeps the earth tilted on its axis. And without it being exactly the size that it is and the distance that it is from earth, you would not have the properties of the gravitational pull of the moon that you have so that we have seasons. Get rid of the moon, no seasons, say some astrophysicists. I don't know what they say. If the moon was not the perfect exact size and place that it is, then it couldn't give you the kind of solar eclipse that we get which gives you a small ring around the sun. When the moon eclipses the sun, it gives you a small ring called the corona around the sun that enables us to study the sun. We can't look at the sun with our equipment unless there's a lunar eclipse, and then we can study the sun and its light. And what we know about stars, we know because of solar eclipses and the corona around the sun. Furthermore, the only planet we know of where you can stand on ground and look out from the atmosphere where we're actually on an observatory is this planet, the one where there are observers to observe through the observatory. These are all little pieces of evidence. You get a little bit closer to the sun, you can burn up a little further from the sun, we freeze, we're in that perfect spot and it's all tweaked, it's all perfectly calibrated. So many little things. I told you one piece of evidence, I just gave you like seven. See, God made this and he holds it together and it's perfectly situated and it's not by chance, it's by design. And that doesn't prove the cross it just gives you a little bit of a reminder that the God that you're trusting, the God that you serve, is the God holding all things together by his powerful word. J. Werner Wallace had a great point he made in his book on cold case Christianity. Wait, wait I'm sorry. In a, in, no, it was a later in a podcast when he was talking about uh, going to churches. He said, the place uh, that I think tells you the best, um, the best insight you get on the, the, the health of a church on whether it's actually what I would call on mission is looking at its calendar. If the calendar of the church is Sunday, we meet and that's all, then you don't really have a thriving and growing and developing church in terms of the mission because people are just nodding to God. They're just showing up and leaving. And that's what they think church is. not the Philippians, not here at Preston city Bible church. Why? Because we have work to do and we're soldiers advancing in ranks together. We have a, a very busy calendar. Paul commands the um, Philippians to become fellow imitators of him, which is exactly what you need to do. Be an imitator of Paul, brethren, and observe such others as walk as you have us for a pattern. What kind of egocentric statement is this? Just act like me and you'll be right. Well, the truth is that as Paul is imitating Christ, but he's not the savior. He's just a disciple of the savior. So you can walk like Paul walks and you'll get it right. As I said last hour, every parent should really be burdened with this because the kids are supposed to follow in your footsteps and get where they need to go. Paul says it to his spiritual children in Philippi. We should be very careful about this disciple making effort. Your choices matter Christians. Because as you grow spiritually, others are supposed to see how you do it and emulate you. That puts some gravity to this whole, you know, serving God. Thing. Well, I thought it was just about me and the Lord. Well, you and the Lord are pre pretty quickly going to become what God uses you to be in someone else's life. And you're to be an exemplar. Just like Paul says, you follow me. Now, if Paul's getting it right and you follow Paul, now you're getting it right. If someone gets in line behind you, they're getting it right because we're following Jesus. And that's, that's just surrounding yourself with wise counsel. You need to be around people that are getting it right. So that all the time you spend around people that aren't 
is a little bit unbalanced uh, back, uh, back to sanity. We're all going to be around people constantly. Paul says you have to be around people that are uh, walking in gross personal sin because it's the whole world. But that's 1 Corinthians 5. You have to. But you don't need to become of the world. You don't need to be stained by the world. You need to be in the world, but not of it. So surround yourself with people, but have, have a relationship in your church family where you can see who to follow, people that are imitating Paul. Now, when you and I are not imitating Paul and therefore Jesus, we should not be followed. <laughs> and nobody here is Jesus except Jesus. The person on the ego trip that says, oh, yeah, I got the spiritual goods. They need to shut up. They don't know unless they know Jesus. And that's all we know. The person who says, well, we could never imitate Christ so that someone could follow us. They're missing what Paul says too. The truth is, forget what lies behind. You stretch forward to the things that are ahead so that you can lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of you. Now let's talk about something that's really sad. Paul says he's going to cry now in verses 18 and 19. For many walk who, as I told you before, often, but now I'm also telling you weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Many's, many people have as a pattern of life what Paul calls the walk. Many walk. It's this word here, peripateo. It means to go through life, to go about. Walk about would be the literal from peri and pateo, to go around and pateo, to walk, to walk around. It means their course of life, the walk that they have in life. He just said, walk like I walk. And now he's saying there's a lot of people that walk like they shouldn't walk. Don't follow them. Now, I want to figure out who these people are because Paul is crying about them. Romans 9, it's the Jews. Philippians 3, verses 2 and following, it's the Judaizers. In context, it may well be people that claim to be Christian, but he's going to say whose end is destruction. What does it mean by destruction? The sin unto death for a Christian? The lake of fire for a non-believer? He doesn't say. He's very vague. Here's the description of the people who are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. You're supposed to advance in ranks, but these people are enemies of the cross of Jesus. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. I should have put lowercase g. If only we had computers, we could just fix that really quickly. There's a computer in the pulpit. Anyway, whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach, whose glory is in their shame. What is Paul's glory in Philippians 3? I have nothing to boast in except Jesus Christ. Anything that I could boast in that isn't Christ, I consider it to be flushed and, and rendered far away from me as dung, he says. Philippians 3. So it's all about Jesus for him. And he says, for these people, their end is destruction. He doesn't say what destruction it is, but their God is their stomach. What does that mean? Their God is their stomach. Are they doing crunches? What their, their God is their, their God is their, what does this mean? It means that whatever they feel like, excuse me, it means that whatever we feel like is all that matters to us. It means that the only criterion that I have that I really go by is what I feel like in the moment. And so what my appetites or my stomach declares is what I choose to do. It's that I'm serving my feelings. That's the people whose God is their stomach, the enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose glory is in their shame. Paul's glory is in Christ. These people's glory is in their shame. Good Lord. That's some rough language. But here's the key. Those who set their minds on epigeia, the things of the earth. Those who set their minds on, in my Bible translates, earthly things. Those who phroneo, to set your mind, to think, and their occupation is with this thing, their occupation of mind, is on hoita epigeia, the things upon earth, geia, earth. Maybe you know geia the Greek word for earth and paganism, a deity, because we're just worshiping nature, mother nature just means the earth, the things on the earth, 
Of course, we're going to hold the place and flip over to another apostle, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're studying the Christian life of Paul, but you know, there's another apostle, the Lord Jesus, that says something very similar. I've written to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You positionally in Christ, young believers, says 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. What an adjustment of thinking where I'm not regarding what I can see anymore, but the one that I haven't seen, but I love because he's given himself for me. Now, those that did see him, John, the apostle John in first John two, he tells you about him. Those that did see him, uh, Paul on the road to Damascus saw Jesus Christ was caught up to the third heaven at another point to be taught uh, a really powerful uh, phase of seminary instruction. It says 2 Corinthians, 11, 2 Corinthians 12. They saw him. You don't see him. We haven't seen him. That's the thing. You trust the one you haven't seen, says Peter. But the way you can become someone like this is to set your mind on the things of the earth. How to be an enemy. <laughs> There's a difference between and and and. Kind of raw, Pastor Dave. It's all homemade. That's the thing. You get messy tool marks with homemade stuff, how to be an enemy of the cross, how to be an enemy. Do you know how to be an enemy of the cross? Well, why would I want to be that? Well, because the truth is that at times we are this and we need to see it and we need to say, no, I don't want to be this, but here's how to be an enemy of the cross. Point one, if you're taking notes, I'll wait. Set your mind on earthly things. Doesn't that sound Sunday schooly? Set your mind on earthly things. <laughs> As opposed to uh, Colossians 3. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on earthly things. Point two. That's it. <laughs> that's it. That's how to be an enemy of the cross. I don't want to be an enemy of the cross. I don't want you to be an enemy of the cross. He says that language because you're supposed to shrink back from that. I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be opposed to the objectives of my savior. Well, he's challenging these Philippians to advance in the mission of our savior, to be a soldier of the cross. Advance in line. Pursue that for which Christ laid hold of you. You're going after a good outcome in the judgment seat of Christ, which says Jesus, where Jesus says, I like what you did with the resources I gave you. I got a question. You who are believers in Christ, why do you have the Holy Spirit? Because I believed in Christ as my savior. And we're told in Colossians or Galatians that he's coming to our hearts to abide forever. So I have the Holy Spirit because I believed in Christ as my savior. But that's not what I'm asking. I didn't say, how did you get the Holy Spirit? By the hearing of faith, by the way, that's how you get him. But why has the Lord Jesus Christ provided you with the spirit of Christ, God, the Holy Spirit to live in you in this age? Why do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you know the answer to that? Hey, Arete, does anybody know why God, the Holy Spirit has been given to you? I mean, from what the word of God says, have you ever thought about that? Some of you are looking at me like, well, we're not even sure if there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. And that sounds like a Bible verse. Well, just get with the Apostle Paul and Peter and James and John and the, the Apostles of Jesus. And you'll learn all about the third person of the Trinity who's come into the hearts of believers to equip us. But what for? Why does the Bible say we would receive the Holy Spirit? Yeah. In Luke 24 and Acts 1 the, the, the beloved physician, Luke, Paul's doctor tells us why in the, in the words of Jesus, he's going to give you the promise of the father, the Holy spirit, so that you can be witnesses. You can bear witness for Christ. You're going to be my witnesses in, in 
Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, when you've been clothed with power from on high, when you receive the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit of God because there's work to do, and He equips you. He's the power, the energizer, who gives you the ability to do the work. And for, in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus is sending His disciples out to preach to the cities of, of, of Israel, not to, the lost sheep, not, not, not to the Gentiles, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in the mission of the earthly gospel of the kingdom where Jesus is offering Israel a kingdom. He says, don't worry what you're going to say when you're called to account. God, the spirit will equip you with what to say. We have the Holy Spirit in us because we are called to a mission and we need power. We need enablement. We need equipping. And the way you can become an enemy of the cross is to just disregard God and just set your mind on earthly things. Why? Why is it like this? Think about this with me, beloved. Why will that make me an enemy of the cross? I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I'm just trying to pay the bills. Just trying to get the transmission, transmission fixed so we can take the kids to school and not have to ride the bus just trying to get stuff done. I'm just trying to have a little me time and decompress in the man cave. I'm just trying to, you know, get through. Why is it like this? Because first we are at war. If you don't recognize that there is a war that you've been born into the whole human race, for all of human history has been embroiled in this war. It's a spiritual war. If you don't understand that, then you are a combatant unaware that you're on a battlefield. Might wake that baby up. I assure you that if I'm trying to wake someone up, it's not the baby. Why? Why will this make me an enemy of the cross to set my mind on earthly things because the battlefield is in the thinking it's setting your minds. He says the battlefield that we're, that, that we're fighting on is our thinking. It's the principles and the things we believe and the, the convictions that we hold that carry over into the conduct that we, that we do. That's where the war is. Nah, pastor Dave, it's not a war. It is a war. And the first skirmish, the first, battle of this war as it affects the human race you read about it in genesis chapter 3 there's already a war on because there's already someone speaking against god and the one speaking against god tells you two key things that help you understand his deceptive plans that's satan who deceives the nations the first thing he says is you will not die well the first thing he says is well has god said you may you may eat from every tree but when they tell him God's word, he contradicts God's word. You will not die when you eat from the tree. That's the first step in the deception is directly contradict God's word. The Bible says Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, but I feel differently. But my culture says differently, but we've got a different cultural expectation today. So it can't mean what it says in Genesis 2, one man, one woman, that's marriage. The whole design of woman is so that God could provide man a help meet. That's the origin of marriage. Oh, no, 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 no. We can't accept that today. Well, God said it's this way. And then Satan contradicts God's word. When you hear the contradiction of God's word, you're hearing God's enemy speaking. That's the definition of the, the accuser, Satan. He opposes God's word. That's the first thing he does. And the second thing is that he provides a counter narrative. He says, God, it's not true that you will die when you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, despite what God said in Genesis 2.17. The next thing he does is he fills you in with an alternate story that sounds good to me. God knows that when you eat from the tree, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. That's the lie that follows right on, don't believe God's word, believe my accusation of his character. So God is not good, he's not loving, he's not standing by to bless his image bearer as he already has. He planted you this garden and he's blessed you with every good thing, but uh, he's really holding back the goods from you. That's Satan's lie about the character of God. This is the war. And the woman was so compromised by, you will not die and God knows that he's holding back goods from you. She was so compromised that she completely disregarded God's word. And then she began to look at the fruit. And this was the deception that resulted in her decision to disobey God. 
It's a battle of your thinking. And it's all about God's word or not. The things above or what you can see and touch. I've said it last hour. I'm going to say it every time I, I think of it. Every time I think of it, I promise to say it. The culture you live in is becoming more and more materialist in its philosophical stance. What is materialism? What do I mean? I don't mean Charlie Brown saying it's not about the gifts or the money you spend. I don't mean that. Well, I'm not materialistic. I don't, you know, I, I drive an old car. That's not what it means. Materialism is the philosophical stance that all there is, is material things matter. All there is, is the physical environment we live in the universe. Thankfully, we live on a planet that has oxygen since all there is, is matter. And we oxygen breathers need it. So it's here lucky for us. We somehow won the lottery of the universe that we by chance exist here on this ball, which is the only place we can be certain we can get hold of some oxygen and survive the spaceship called earth. Materialism says all there is, is all you can see. That's your culture. What's going on in the evangelical church to get the kids to come to church? Which, I mean, I know y'all, a bunch of kids have come to church. And I, I say kids affectionately for 50 and under. I'm one of them. What gets the people, the young people, to church? Big screens, a lot of noise, some fog, all sensory stuff. It's feeding the lusts of a materialistic culture. And, and we do that because we want them to hear the gospel. So we'll give you a lollipop if you just sit still and listen for a second. That's what they're doing. That's the culture. And that's the way American like missiology has worked. We're like, we got to join this culture and help them get to the gospel. So we've got to feed them their material lusts because they've got to see something. They got to hear something. They got to, they got to have a feeling because all there is, is either my God is my stomach or what, what I feel like, or all that I really believe in is what I can see and touch. The culture you live in is materialistic. You're going to have to say no. You're going to have to say no to the proposition that ideas are not real things. That the spirit of man is a construct that man has, has thought up for himself. You're going to have to actually believe in there is an immaterial you. And more importantly, you and all your beauty and complexity are made to bear the image of the God who made you, who is not a physical being, but who is a very real spiritual being. He's not matter. He's not made of matter. You can't weigh him, but he is before all things. He exists eternally before there was ever any physical material space. This is the, this is the conflict of visions that you're in and that we're sending children into a world that they're going to be force fed materialism. And we're not equipping them to say, honey, here's the way the world is. Six year old God made you. And you're made fearfully and wonderfully to be like him and your in your heart inside out and your choices matter to him because he's always there. And the world around you is going to teach that he doesn't even exist and that you're not even a spiritual being that we're not equipping the little children at that level to say, Oh, there's a war on it means you're sending kids into a minefield with a blindfold on. The battlefield is in the thinking it's in your mind. And there's one example of the materialistic philosophical culture you live in to be an enemy of the cross is to set your mind on earthly things because we have a sinful nature that draws us, that pulls on us just to ignore God at first, just ignore him. Just do what you feel like in the moment. It's a little tug and we, and we go with it. We, we, yeah, I just dis disregard him. But the truth is that before you ever committed that personal sin that God said, don't do this, you had the first thought that, well, I don't really need to worry about him and what he thinks in this moment. And maybe it's just by a subtle ignoring of him. But that ignorance becomes a habit. To set your mind on earthly things is to be an enemy of the cross because as you ignore God, you find yourself neglecting your duty to God. That's where you stop serving him because you stop thinking of him. I know it's like, this sounds like American evangelicalism. This is the culture that we're, we're in, we're in. This is where, this is where our country is. 
We ignore God and we find ourselves neglecting our duty. How do you, well, how will we fix that? Well, you set your mind on heavenly things. Well, how do I get hold of that? The book. Take up and read. Read what he said so that you can understand what he meant. And you're seeking to know him and what he wrote. You're not going through your 15 minutes of devotions because that's what we do. That's what we do because in that time that you spend in the word, you're seeking to know him. Well, I didn't really understand what I wrote, what I read. Well, tell him, God, I didn't get that. Help me understand some of the greatest. The, the, these are the doorways. These moments where you didn't get it and you ask God to help you. These are the doorways to the greatest insights. You're, he's saying, okay, you're going to have to come get a drill and, and do some excavation here. Cause there's a, there's a major gold load through here and you're going to have to, to dig. But as we find ourselves ignoring God, we find ourselves neglecting our duty and this neglect, we will become enemies of the cross by ignoring God, by setting our mind on earthly things, because our neglect becomes a habit. Our neglect becomes habitual and we deny our design by habit. I start just doing what I feel like because I'm not thinking about the things above where Christ is. And I'm not on mission for getting the things behind and stretching forward to what lies ahead as I seek to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. If we set our minds on earthly things, we become enemies of the cross because the resulting void of purpose and significance that comes from a habitual neglect of God makes this vacuum, if you will, in our soul. It makes this vacuum that sucks futility and meaninglessness and worthlessness into us. And all that's left is the chasing after diversion and distraction. Have you, have you ever spent some time in that void, in that vacuum of soul where you're not filled with God's purpose? You're not aware of his love. You're not aware of his presence. And it's just whatever I feel like. Well, I'm not doing all kinds of bad things. I didn't say you're committing crimes. You may not even be committing, you know, church sins, fornication and things we talk about in church. It may just be pleasing self with diversion, forgetting who you are, forgetting your identity in Christ. We will be enemies of the cross by setting our minds on earthly things because when we've left every sense of purpose and divine transcendence, all you can hope for is this meaningless pursuit of pleasure. Has the culture you live in, does it have anything for you? If you want to disregard the transcendent eternal things of God and your purpose and your design and just go after simple pursuits, is there anything for you in the culture? How many kids over the time I've been here with you that I've said, what are you going to do with your life? How many kids, honestly, in a moment of like, they didn't think I was judging them. Of course I was, but they didn't think I was judging them as, as I'm asking, what are you going to do with your life? And the teenager will say, I'm going to be a video game designer, that that's my great pursuit in life. I want to, I want to make video games. Now, that's not a criticism of the whole kids, the kid's whole life or future. It's where is their mind in this critical phase in a pubescent boy between ages of, you know, 12, 13 and marriage, where he's learning to be a man and do what's necessary. His great pursuit in life is to design video games because I love it so much. And it's the one thing that gives me the dopamine rush that I, the only place I get it anymore, that I've got to pr promote that and advance that. That's my mission in life. That's all he knows. It's the United States, pretty much. Pastor Dave is not preaching against video games. I was trained in the, in the U.S. Army um, using Nintendo brand equipment back in, the, back in the days of the Weaponeer in the late 90s. There's value. There's, there's benefit to the simulator. I learned to shoot a tank in a video game on the simulator. It's a very expensive video game. But they have their purpose. But David Roseland said video games have a purpose. Yeah. But th this is so much more than playing. This is so much more than this pursuit. It's that I've, dis I've lost track of what matters and I'm just trying to get through life and life hurts and, and there's problems and I don't want to look at the solutions. A lot of times those problems come along because God's knocking and saying, get back on mission. 
The more we say, no, I'm just going to pursue my diversion, the less our conscience is being calibrated by God's word. This is how to become an enemy of the cross. And it's true for you and me. When we make God, make, make our stomach, our appetite, our criterion, our thing we serve, what we feel like. When we set our minds on earthly things. Pastor, that's very bleak. And um, you're giving us like a hopelessness as it regards the flesh. And there's no meaning or significance in this kind of thinking and life. And what's the point? And the answer is what comes next. You look beyond what you can see and touch. You look beyond this earthly things mindset and you see all of life, all the things that you can see as details in service to what really matters. And now we find our citizenship is in heaven in verse 20. Our citizenship actually exists in heaven. I've translated this word huparko. Let me pull it up for you. Huparko as H-U-P-A-R-C-H-O. I've translated this word for existence. It can be translated is. My Bible may translate it is, but I think the word exist is um, more uh, central to how this word is used. And my actually is kind of a paraphrase. That's your real citizenship. Why do I say actually? Philippians are Roman citizens as though Philippi is a subset of the city of Rome. And these people he's writing to take pride as citizens of Rome in their status as their high standing. It's not like American citizenship where, you know, like it doesn't matter um, to more than half the population, apparently. Um, it's like a huge privilege. It's an aristocratic privilege to be a Roman citizen. And so, well, the Philippians can go to bed tonight and say, well, at least I'm a Roman. Paul just said, that's all garbage. Let's all flush it and get rid of it stuff. The, all the claims that you have to any high standing. These are the things of the earth. At least my citizenship is in Rome. No, your actual citizenship is in heaven. From which also for a savior, we're waiting eagerly, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the alternative to setting my mind on earthly things and becoming an enemy of the cross with my stomach as my God, my appetites. This is the, this is the solution. Believers grab it. Your citizenship is in heaven and from heaven is your savior coming. And we're waiting eagerly for him. Remember what Paul said, the things behind, I forget in the present, I'm stretching forward to the things that are coming. He's looking for the biblical eschatological promises that God has given us. So we're, we're living in the present with our attention on what's coming. That's the Christian mindset. This is to set your mind on the things that are not on earth, but the things above. Colossians 3 says the same thing. It does the exact same thing. They're waiting eagerly for Christ. But the one that I think is most relevant here, here for you and me is the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ and his mindset himself. And for Hebrews chapter 12, well-traveled soil. I want to remind you, since we have the Old Testament witnesses in Hebrews 12.1 surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, flush it, every encumbrance, and the sin which so easily entangles us. That's a choice too. My God isn't my appetite. You know, there's a super highway of connectivity between your sinful nature and your feelings. Doesn't mean all your feelings are sinful, but it means most of your sinful urges connect to your feelings. Nobody ever did something that God said not to do, except they felt like it. Nobody ever disregarded what God said, except they felt like it. Nobody ever said, you know, it's time I've set aside for the word, but I just don't feel like it. Hopefully everyone understands that's a universal feeling. I don't really don't feel like reading the Bible. Yeah. So read the Bible. Well, I don't really feel like, right. So read the Bible because the feelings are going to change. That's your design. You're, you're not all that. You're not there yet. You need to be in a constant state of transformation as you're growing spiritually. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the Old Testament saints. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us, therefore, here's the hortatory command. Everybody needs to do this. Let us run the race that's been set before us. What? How did you get a race? How did you find yourself in a race in Hebrews 12, 1? It was set before you. That's a passive verb. 
You didn't set yourself up for a race. You didn't register and pay your your fee to, to go run the race. It's like you woke up and you were wearing racing gear and you had a number on you and you just heard, wait a second, why am I away? Oh, the pistol. I just woke up to the sound of the pistol and I'm running the race that has been set before me. Notice you didn't put yourself into this. God did this for you, but it's a, so if I'm supposed to be running a race, then I'm not doing something else. That's the one great thing about running my very limited experience with track running quarters. I called it running. I don't know if everyone else would have thought it was running. (laughs) When you're running a race to win, you're really not doing anything else in that moment. That's really all you have time for. In fact, the whole thing is about time. How can I do this in less time? And it's all that we're doing. And it's in Greek and agona. It's the race. It's the agony. It hurts that quarter or that mile or that two mile, whatever race, because you're giving it all. Run the race with endurance that's set before us. Now, how am I going to have this endurance and run this race? Does anybody know? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Anybody know how you can have endurance to run the race that's been set before you? You know, Jerry? Yeah, yeah. We look away unto Jesus. He says, in my New American Standard, fixing our eyes on Jesus. In Greek, it says, looking away unto Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I read it fast. When you read it in your 15-minute devotion time, you'll be a casual reader, and if you don't get what he just said, you will be a casualty. Here's what we've got to get. I'm running the race by fixing my eyes on Jesus. And the question is, in what sense? Who for the joy that is set before him, what's coming in the future, he's able to endure the cross in the present. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He can manage the cross. He's enduring the cross because he's fixing his eyes on what is coming for the joy that's set before him. What is the joy that was set before him? I read it in context. He says he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is glorified and exalted. It is the glory and the exaltation that comes through this cross work of obedience where the son is obeying the father that I'm looking forward to that gives me endurance for the suffering now. And that's what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter three, verse uh, 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Look to heaven. What is coming? Jesus is coming for you. And there's a judgment and evaluation when he comes. And the judgment is you either walked in the power that I gave you to do the work that I gave you, or you didn't. And what stopped me from doing the work? Well, I had, was kind of hung up on alcohol. Well, I really felt like I needed to be play, paying attention to all the things and I just didn't be, get on mission. Well, I just had all, you know, I was, I was addicted. That word addiction doesn't just mean substances. I had bad habits that kept me out of the work. And I just, you know, I just really never could. I was saved. I'm an American. What do you want me to say, Lord? No, our citizenship is in heaven. And so we're waiting eagerly for a savior. Are you on your tiptoes waiting for your savior from heaven who delivers you from the wrath to come in first Thess chapter one? Why do we wait for our savior eagerly? He will transform the body of our humble estate so that we become, become conformed to his glorious body. So instead of focusing on the things here on earth, I'm looking toward the resurrection body. I'm looking toward the rest- restoration of all things. In accordance with the operational power by which he's able also to subject him to himself all things. So I'm looking at my Savior and his transformation of me and what's coming with that transformation. That's our hope. Let me, let me ask you, let me, let me take a different direction. Let me take a different cut. I'm going to do something very dangerous. I'm trying to maintain six feet of distance and not sneeze. And I'll try not to speak forcefully. You ever try not to sneeze and start thinking about it? And then you're like, oh no, I'm going to have a room full of sneezers. Don't do it. Maybe we'll yawn a little bit. <gasps> See if I can catch somebody yawning by pretending to yawn. You know, the compulsive yawner. What if, 
What if I ask you, what is the relevance of the promised resurrection body to you? What, what, what difference does it make to you? Tomorrow afternoon at 2.15, whatever's going on Monday afternoon at 2 p.m., you're dealing with accounts, you're dealing with setting up the rest of your week, you're de- three more hours until you can start fighting the way home in the traffic, whatever it is. What if tomorrow at 2 in the afternoon, in the middle of your doing your work, I said, what is the relevance of the resurrection that's promised to you to this moment right now. My prayer is that you would be able to smile and say, it makes it worthwhile what I'm going through right now. My prayer is that you're able to say, oh yeah, it's the, it's the only thing that I'm, I'm really have to look forward to. Cause when you compare our resurrection to anything else, well, anything else loses. What would happen in most cases in America not down on our country. I'm a patriot, but it's more about the founding, not the, not the slide, not what we've done with our freedom the last 60 years. What most people, Christians, would probably say is they'd blink at you and say, I don't have time for this. I'm getting back on the phone. And the difference is not one was working and one wasn't. The difference is why. Well, that's our only hope, the resurrection. That's the only thing that makes this work I'm doing matter. Because I'm walking by the Spirit, I'm trusting in my Savior, I'm waiting for His coming, and I'm doing what I'm doing for Him. If you can't answer this question in the moment, hey, puts everything in perspective, that's why. Then you're not thinking like Jesus thinks, you're not enduring, and you're not running the race the way He sets you up to run it. And so the summary command, therefore... My beloved brethren and earnestly desired. This is how I feel about you, Philippians. Beloved brethren and earnestly desired. Epipothetoi. Sorry, epipothetoi. Your agapetoi and your epipothetoi. Your eagerly, earnestly desired. My joy and crown. Paul cannot get away when he talks about the resurrection from talking about the rewards. And this is the same thing he says to the Thessalonians. You are my joy and my crown at Jesus appearing because the reward I get has to do with the work I did on your account. And your growth is pleasing to God and he used me to do that. So he's going to reward me for that. And this is the way you are related to those who teach you the word of God, according to Paul, my joy and crown. In this way, what I just said about looking to the resurrection, about keeping your, your, your mind on things above, about a different way than the materialistic approach. Recognizing your citizenship in heaven in, in this way, stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Oops. It happens. There we go. What changed? That's a command. Christians, how can you stand fast in the Lord and not be an enemy of the cross? There's only one way. And it's to keep your mind set on the things above. There's only one way. If you're there in this moment, awesome. That's the design. But this moment doesn't necessarily mean you'll be there tomorrow. Tomorrow's, you're going to have to continue the advance. What Philippians does to me is it takes away everything but Jesus. If there's anything but Jesus, I'm going to end up being that enemy of the cross. Not for you, beloved. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We dedicate the closing moments this morning to anyone who may be here or in the hearing of my voice out on the internet. Who has not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The message today has been to a Christian audience the advance of God's grace in their lives as they grow spiritually to serve him and not waste their lives. But before you, if you don't know Jesus as your savior is a much more important question. And it is the question of having the life in the first place. I'm trying to equip Christians to live the life 
My prayer for you is that you will receive the life so that you can live it. Very simple. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. What this means is that there's nothing you do, nothing you can say, no work of righteousness you can do, no feeling sorry that is going to sufficiently accomplish what God alone has done for you in Jesus Christ at the cross. And this is the love of God. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We bow our head and we close our eyes because between you and God is the issue. Do I have eternal life? And the way you know it is not because you have a certain feeling. The way you know you have the life is because you have believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. The first time you can truly say that is the moment of eternal life where you receive God's life and you have it forever. The Apostle John says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I pray for you that you will consider Christ, his love for you, his work for you on the cross, and receive the life that he alone gives. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. He died for my sins. God, I'm trusting alone in him and his work. This is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for these dear ones you've brought together today, that we could advance together in line, just like the Philippians. Father, make us, each one of us, a Philippian believer. Make us imitators of the Apostle Paul, and so therefore of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make us successful as we look at your son and his pattern and we keep seeking the things above. For there is no greater pursuit than your son. Anything less is a waste. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.